0: Well hello everybody and welcome to another episode of the Adventure Science Podcast. Uh, I'm your host Simon Donato. Unfortunately Chanel can't join us today although I know she'd have a lot of uh, interesting questions for our guest but uh, life has taken her elsewhere for the uh, time being. So Adventure Science Podcast uh, explores the interplay between adventure, exploration, science and history and today I'm really excited to interview uh, a fellow Explorers Club member. Her name is Cedar Swan. She's the CEO of Adventure Canada and Adventure Canada is a very long-lived Canadian adventure travel outfitter uh, that has an excellent reputation. They're based in Toronto, Ontario but they travel primarily through uh, Arctic climes in Canada and beyond and Cedar was essentially born into this and She lives it, breathes it uh, day in day out as not only the CEO of the company but she's also on the expeditions as well and focused on giving the best uh, possible customer experience. However, uh, because of all her experience, she's also a member of the Explorers Club, she's a founding member of the Canadian Women for Nature, and she's also a fellow of the Royal Canadian Geographical Society. So without further ado, Cedar, welcome to the podcast. Looking forward to a great interview ahead. Thanks, Simon. Yeah. Well, you know, we'll start off uh, by throwing a, a lobbing a little uh, easy one to you. How did you get into adventure and exploration? Well,
1: in my case, I didn't actually have too much choice, and uh, <laughs> you know, it's it's something I'm extremely thankful for. Uh, I was uh, born to a, a very adventurous family. Um, my. Uh, folks spent most of their time as young people traveling the world and exploring and getting out there off the beaten path. And that continued once they had us kids. There was three of us in our family and uh, we really had the opportunity to spend a lot of time out in nature and get to know the world around us and meet incredible Um, people that really have served as inspirations for for all of us kids in the family. And we were just blessed with uh, an outstanding childhood.
0: Where did you grow up? Where did you call home?
1: (laughs) Well, we were somewhat nomadic, um, primarily throughout Ontario, uh, some small town Ontario. And then we spent quite a bit of time uh, in the Ottawa area and and the valley uh, before before really settling in, uh, in, uh, in Toronto, Ontario.
0: Okay. Now when you were growing up with all the travel you're doing and the adventure side of your life, uh, did you get into sports? Were you athletic or was that primarily just getting outside is that that's how you burned off the energy?
1: Well, for me, no, I definitely was a sports nut as a kid, and and soccer was probably my number one sport, although I did everything I did, I only assumed I was going to reach the Olympics in, so, you know, (laughs) I... I I played soccer I was uh, a competitive swimmer and uh, and really loved cross-country running as well so so yeah I we had uh, I I really did a lot of that and spent a lot of my time um, playing sports when I was when I was a young person and and yeah and then the other side of that was that we were always outdoors with our with our family and we did a lot of um, you know sort of uh, canoe tripping and camping and um, and spending time with um, our other family out in the Rockies, so we really got um, a really great experience of, well, essentially a, a great way to burn up all that childhood energy.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, it seems like so many of us have had such a similar childhood experience. We've got our mentors, and, you know, they, they help introduce us and encourage us, maybe when we don't always want to get outside uh, and, and play and have fun and when the TV shows are, are calling us indoors, and you've got somebody to push you outside, but it, it seems that you know there is that innate love of the outdoors in most of us. Most of us have some interest in athletics, whether or not it's team sports. You know not everybody was blessed with coordination uh, in their year, early years, but they did enjoy the walks in the woods. Now, I, I don't want to get too much into what you do for business yet, but just a quick question and some insight. What do you see with a lot of your clients, or maybe your staff? Were these people who seem to have followed a similar path as you when you were younger? Do you you find that kind of similarity with people, or it's just all walks?
1: No, I really do see a lot. I I share that same sentiment in that uh, you know, sort of our our peer group really has a lot in common. You know, we had folks that that drove us to be out, outdoors. And, uh, you know, another common thread that I really see that I, I find pretty interesting is the experience of summer camp, too. I mean, certainly not certainly not everybody, but, you know, just that, um, that opportunity to get out there, that real, uh, or for me, at least, it was um, a real push for independence and, um, you know, that ability to get out there on your own without the safety net and comfort zone and, you know, to be with a bunch of other people that just really, truly loved um, the outdoors and trying new things and building upon a team and creating community. Uh, I find personally, uh, in particular with our guides um, that, that we work with and, and the team that we have at Adventure Canada, I mean, just um, people, yeah, that really would rather spend their time outdoors versus indoors.
0: Interesting. You know, it's, I mean, with two young kids of your own, I'm sure you're already thinking about uh, schooling for them and, and everything else. And, you know, with a young one on the way for Chanel and I, we're looking into the future, of course, four to six years. But, you know, we see so many friends struggling to keep their children interested in the outdoors and, you know, having to really work hard to, to get them outside. And, you know, I mean, one of my good friends, Jason, he, he loves motorsports. So, you know, it's buying a uh, little motorbike for uh, for his son and going out with him every time and and just trying to really encourage that because the iPods uh, and tablets are just so damn engaging now.
1: Yeah, and it really is easy to get uh, stuck into that, you know, in particular, you know, when we have to all balance our professional lives and, um, and what we might prefer to be doing, um, you know, <laughs> at other times of the day, um, mm-hmm. but it's, it's really, it really is important. And I mean, we feel blessed to be able to live in, you know, a, a world where we have those opportunities to get our kids out. And, um, you know, even if we're out and about um, the city, we live here in Port Credit, Ontario, that, you know, there's some nice places that might, you might not be in the middle of nowhere, but there's still really great um, opportunities to get your kids hooked
0: you know, it's interesting that you say that because I find that uh, a lot of my peers who, you know, mainly are on the adventure athlete side of things, but happen to live in cities, you know, they've, they've got corporate jobs or whatever, but they they find something awesome about wherever they are. And I think that's another common thread between people who just love to be outside. It's you can always make it work. Is it climbing to the top of a uh, temple? Uh, by Lake Louise? No, it's not. But you found a beautiful path that you love in the Don Valley, or Port Credit's got great running trails uh, nearby. Or you don't have to go too far to get to Mount Nemo. Like it's all within striking distance, and it makes the place work, and it makes it livable, and it just adds that extra layer that uh, probably you know gives people like us some sanity for when we're not doing our thing in the middle of nowhere.
1: Yeah, and I really do think it's it's vital to keep that connection because it's it is so easy to get wrapped up in a virtual world. And um, you know, once once you reach a later point in life, it's you know that I, I worry anyways for a lot of young people now that they just um, they're not making those connections early enough, and um, or or even having those opportunities. So hopefully, hopefully, more and more people will will keep that connection alive and really strive to have that as an important part of their daily routine.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Now, since we've been chatting a little bit about the early years and childhood, uh, and you mentioned summer camp, I'm really glad that you brought that up. Were there any uh, seminal moments or something that's really memorable that just pops out in your mind as you know that, that moment where you were just hooked or that event where you're just like, okay, well, maybe my family does this, but... This really is my calling as well or do you feel you just grew into it
1: well I think as a as a kid there was definitely um, a handful of moments that really got me hooked um, on the outdoors um, one was uh, one in particular spending time out in uh, Kootenai National Park and uh, you know I have full spot Yeah, incredible. And just, um, you know, my my uncle lived out there and we had sort of a a social network out there. And so we had opportunities to be in the cabin and just, um, you know, in those early years. I mean, I remember one trip in particular when I was about seven years old, you know, just that moment of sitting around a campfire with a handful of other people you know special people to me at that time and um just being able to really that was my first memory of really feeling at peace you know just Hmm. that things were everything in the world was good and you know we were we were outdoors there was that soft crackle of the fire and um you know it kind of caught me off guard too because there were um um perhaps some wolves or coyotes I'm not sure what sort of howling in the background and it was again my first um probably real experience with having um, or or noticing so much the that there was um, other large predator or animals that, that were right. nearby were sharing that same space and, you know, just being completely unfearful of that and loving that and feeling really that that was exactly what was supposed to be happening. Um, so that was definitely a, a sort of a, a really key moment that remains crystal clear for me now, you know, 30 years later. And um yeah so that that was a big one um you know i am countless experiences at summer camp um you know each one was 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 different and wonderful and helped me grow in in a certain way and uh yeah so and and I would say that probably as I you know what led me to my career path I mean of course uh I had the opportunity being Adventure Canada being a family business my my folks started the company um, but it, there was certainly never any pressure on our end to, out for any, you know, myself or my sister in or my brother MJ to join the family business. It was never a, a given that that was the expectation or even what was wanted. Right. Uh, but you know, I went on my first expedition to the Arctic when I was 14 and, um, you know, growing up in Ontario, I had you know, limited uh, interactions with with sort of a, a an ocean environment, a coastal environment. But um, that was the first time that I was really blown away by um, the vastness of the ocean and um, what what it felt like to be at sea and sort of uh, you know sailing these incredible, dramatic. Um, And what at the time felt like very, um, well, they, they, of course, they are very, very remote coastlines with, um, you know, inhabited by a people that I didn't know much about at that time. And it was just like that feeling of, I felt like I was on the edge of the world. And that was the most exciting feeling that I had ever felt up to that point. And as I said, I was 14. It was, I went, um, it was over the course of my 14th birthday, that trip. And it was just, it, 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 that was probably the moment that changed my life and wow. I knew that I wanted to be out there and I wanted to be doing it and I wanted to always have the opportunity to feel like I was at the edge of the world and that I could be alone in this big landscape. And that was, you know, I think for some people that might be a frightening feeling, but for well, me, I, that
0: I thought of that right away. It's, I mean, did you feel fearful being alone and, and so far away from comfort, perhaps safety?
1: No, I really didn't, and I mean, of course, I—I'll be honest. At 14, I wasn't on my own. I mean, I was there with um, with my father, but it wasn't. Um, it it was it was exhilarating, and it was just one of those moments. Again, similar to that other experience that I described earlier in Cootney National Park, that just that complete feeling of calm and peace that came over, and just felt like this is exactly where I should be at this moment. It was incredible.
0: Well, that's amazing. You describe it so vividly, like you know, you just kind of got back from that trip yesterday. Uh, I mean, that—that's the power of the outdoors and you know, experiencing these places. It's that, you know, it just it writes a permanent memory for you, and you know, you can always go back to it and just snap back like you've—you've you've never left. I mean, for me, there's, there's a couple moments. I mean, I was, you know, the classic sports jock as a kid, never the best, but I always tried hard and that usually got me by. So I played on tons of teams and everything else. Um, But I remember we used to do family camping trips in the summer. And have you ever been to the Tobermory area, Bruce Peninsula National Park?
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: Gorgeous area. And I remember we used to camp at Cypress Lake and we'd we'd walk to uh, Georgian Bay from there and then walk up and down the trail. And I'll never forget the very first time we stumbled on the grotto. Uh, I can't remember if my mom was back at the tent with Angela, my youngest sister at the time, but Christina and I are only two years apart in age and, you know, we're out there with my dad and we stumble upon the grotto. Okay. So everybody who's hiked in the area has been to the grotto. It's really not that big a deal. But for, you know, I was 10 or 12 years old at the time. There was nobody else there when, when we found it. And it really felt like it was just a new discovery to science. It was such an amazing experience, and I, you know, I still I can remember and feel how excited I got, we're running into it, exploring with my sister, and you know that that that's one of the hooks for me. It's just those amazing experiences of discovery, and you know maybe our brains were too young to realize that. Sure, of course, there's a you know, the Bruce Trail runs right by this. So thousands of people have seen this, but no, for that brief moment in time is your own special place. And, you know, I can imagine you standing on a a lonely Arctic shoreline uh, at 14 and just looking around and just going, what the heck, this is amazing. So, yeah, I, I get that for sure.
1: Well, and that is the beauty of, I mean, each of us having those opportunities to have those incredible experiences. I mean, it is true, perhaps, you know, the Bruce Trail does run right near there, but everything can be a big deal if we let it. And really, I think we should because that's how we can grow our appreciation and you know and and live our life in a way that that we love. If everything is jaded, then uh, you know it's well. It's nice to be able to look at it like a
0: child does. Yeah. Yeah, well, if you ask uh, Chanel, I, I still look at most things in a very childlike manner. So I guess I'm lucky in that sense. <laughs> all, right. Um, all right. So let's talk a little bit about uh, the Explorers Club. So that's uh, something that we both share as uh, we both have membership in the club. And, you know, a lot of people from the outside kind of view it as a this weird little organization of elite adventurers and explorers because uh, getting membership is is a little bit challenging but probably less challenging than most would imagine and for me it's just such a great collection of like-minded interesting people all following their own passion and they all have interesting stories as to how they gained membership uh, for me it was it was simply as a student member. My supervisor was a uh, was a fellow of the club, Ed Reinhardt, uh, McMaster University, and um, he said, "Sam, you should consider joining this," which I did. Student membership was something like fifty bucks a year, which I could afford on my uh, doctoral stipend, and uh, the rest for me is history. Um, so you had started traveling at an early age, but. It's not just adventure travel that's needed to gain membership in the Explorers Club or to become a fellow of World Geographic Society. You know, it looks at your contributions to overall scientific learning, etc. So, are there any particular expeditions, or uh, how did how did your background uh, lend itself to you uh, getting membership in the club? Well, I was I uh, I had known
1: about the club. Um for some time before I had uh, before I had joined, and really, um, I I hadn't thought myself uh, a suitable candidate or an obvious candidate. Um, you know, at, when I first learned about it, I mean, yes, I had done lots of amazing travels and um, experienced, you know, an incredible array of of wonders in my life, but, um, it was really at the urging of a gentleman by the name of Stefan Kinberg who, um, said, no, no, you've got it all wrong. Like what you're doing and what you do, um, brings together people's passions and really can forward, um, scientific discovery and research and work. So, um, that's that's how I first even began to consider um, joining joining the club. And um, so on on the trips that I've been on, I mean, I'm not a, I'm not a scientist. That's not my background. I'm a history major from the University of Toronto. But um, we always managed to be able to come back with some pretty incredible observations. And you know, my own personal ones have been a lot of ra- or primarily on my personal observations around, um, climate change in the Arctic. Hmm. So, um, you know, as I said, I started going when I was 14 and, um, you know, I'm 37 now, so, uh, more than half my life and, um, returning to a lot of the same places and, um, and really being able to note the, the differences. I mean, there is, uh, a fjord that I've, that I went to on that very first trip, Ebishead Fjord in in Greenland, and um, the volume of that particular glacier compared to when I was there last year, as an example, I mean, it's less than a third is there, is what's, you know, going out into the sea. So, I mean, what I'm contributing is my own personal observations, but also I think probably the Explorers Club was particularly fond of the fact that I was providing a lot of opportunities for science to to take place. And you know, we work with um, a number of people that are that are doing work with, sort of with microplastics in remote polar regions and, um, and a lot of. Again, we work with a gentleman by the name of Mark Mallory who um, does a lot with, with uh, Bird Studies Canada and and what they have yeah. Yeah, so so I so in the end like I don't I haven't led any specific scientific expeditions but what I've been on um apparently qualified me for for membership in both of those organizations.
0: Well, I mean that, that's interesting because you well your company enables uh researchers to access a lot of these areas and I've noticed that uh on your website for uh, the, the programs that you offer on board, you know, you've got academics, you've got historians, uh, naturalists, and others. So, how does that add to the overall experience for your clients? And, you know, because I, I think, you know, when most people think of getting on a ship, they think of A, heading south for starters, and B, watching fabulous Vegas style shows every evening uh, after they've polished off an all you can eat buffet. So, you know, it's like,
1: which is pretty much absolutely nothing of what we are like
0: <laughs> yeah yeah i mean uh, it's the polar opposite if you'll let me make that point
1: yeah i mean what we try and do is we really try and provide an opportunity i mean first of all let's face it i mean what we're doing is is very comfortable when we're traveling with adventure canada um you know a very comfortable vessel and, and great way to get around um but i mean our main mandate really is to help people see, help them to be able to open their eyes, help them to engage in discussion. And, um, you know, y- you can't do that without talking to people that are in the know. So as you mentioned, yeah, we do have um, all sorts of academics that are on board and travel with us. And one of the things that uh, I think we do best is that we also ensure that there's a healthy contingent of, um, of local representatives as well that are actually providing um a different type of insight, you know, and, and those the, the, the eyes see differently, you know, in terms of, of who's who's looking at a certain subject matter. So, you know, you could be standing there beside, um, you know, a Canada research chair uh, person and then also having a conversation 10 minutes later with an Inuit elder. And the conversations are very, very different, but looking at the exact um, same thing. So I think it's really important to have those uh, different perspectives. And also to be able to try and be part of the conversation with how those two different ways of thinking can come together in a way that recognizes the value of um, of both sides. Uh, I'm not sure. Are you familiar with the uh, Arctic Net, Simon?
0: Yes, I'm. I'm familiar with it. Research yeah,
1: yeah. So um, we were uh, down in Quebec just a, a month or so ago at that that com- at well, their annual gathering, and um, it was just a really incredible. Um, well, it was an incredible conference. First of all, I mean the 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 number of people and the the work that they're doing is just outstanding. Um, but yeah, I was speaking with the executive director, Lee, and um, you know she was really. Um, we had some really, really interesting conversations around how our existing system and the bureaucracy of um, recognizing scientific discovery and legitimizing um, data and so forth uh, is at odds at present with the, you know, with the people that often are living in the areas. So, you know, one of the things that we really try and do um, and, and, and just, I mean, it's not that the the people aren't uh, qualified to do it, but they don't have the academic standing that often um, lends the weight to, uh, you know, to author papers and to be a considered a valued contributor. So I think that's really, really interesting change that's happening um, in science now and like really big and positive steps moving forward. And that's one of the Big things that we really try and support and um, and further when we're when we're together as a group up uh, on an expedition.
0: Well, that's I mean it's important, and we're gearing up for an expedition to King William Island this summer uh, to retrace some of the Franklin route on the uh, western shoreline. The goal is to do a uh, hundred hundred miles self supported uh, northwest to Words Terror Bay at least, and it, it's just been fascinating to dive into all the literature, especially all the recent stuff uh, on the Franklin story, and, you know, you just see what an important role uh, local knowledge has played in the whole thing, especially with with the discovery of the second ship in Terror Bay, where, you know, finally a hunter came forward and said, uh, well, you know, I'm pretty sure I saw a mast uh, sticking out of the ice a couple of years back. I can show you where it was. And it's just it's as simple as that. And, you know, sometimes when that gets glossed over, you lose Uh, key information you definitely lose context and uh, just aside from that having the cultural perspective that's a different cultural perspective from our day-to-day paradigm I think is just enriching and important and it causes us to look at things differently as well and helps appreciate people and the planet differently. So, yeah, that's, uh, and that's it, great.
1: And it can be a really empowering tool as well for um, those that often haven't had that voice. So it's, I, I think it's really great that, um, you know, as a scientific community, that that's the direction that, um, that we're going.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more with you. Well, I've, I've got some questions for you then about... What you're seeing in terms of climate change uh, in the Arctic as a whole. So, I mean, you, you mentioned that from when you were 14 to more recent trips, you've seen decrease in the volume of ice that's that's spilling out into the seaway. But what are you seeing in terms of the people up there? What are what are the attitudes that uh, seem to be shifting? I just interviewed uh, Matthias Breiter uh, recently talk about bears and polar bears and you know he's saying that he's noticing localized effects of climate change but he's still expecting it's going to be decades before you see a major shift so i'd be interested in knowing your perspective on that yeah
1: well i mean i certainly don't want to speak on behalf of the the people that are experiencing that but my general uh sense is that um there's a feeling of um unpredictability and um that's the number one um thing that i'm hearing is that there there's a lot of concern for um for tradition in terms of you know like perhaps it's your traditional hunting area your traditional fishing area can you do that safely now uh, can you yes. go out on the ice, um, where you used to be able to, but, you know, perhaps now it's not such a, a safe route. And I mean, my husband's from Maine and but Northern Labrador. And, um, you know, there, the, the conditions are just, you know, even from when he was young, which wasn't that long ago, you know, is, uh, it's, it's the unpredictability that I think is, um, perhaps most alarming. And you know, I mean, there are definitely uh, signs that uh, it's happening. I mean, I'm a, I am a believer in climate change, and it, it, there's no denying that in, in my mind. Um, and, uh, and 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 the key word is change, you know, and and it's it's happening, and and I think that. Um, People are doing their best to equip themselves with being able to handle that and more support is needed to be able to understand what's really happening um, so that um, they can be best prepared. People that are living in the North in particular can be best prepared for how that affects their day-to-day life because it affects it on a very different way than it does for us down in the South. Our, Our food source isn't directly tied to the land right beside us necessarily um you know and our our mode of transportation is not um often by skidoo over sea ice and so you you know i mean it's um i feel of course down south we feel climate change as well but in the north it really affects people in um in a more day-to-day and and real way than it is it is presently affecting us further south
0: well, that's a, that's a really interesting perspective. Uh, and one of, the, one of the things that surprised me, uh, because I was talking to a um, paleoclimatologist to prepare for this upcoming expedition, and I was asking her questions uh, about sea level rise, because that's the that's talk of the town. When people talk climate change, it's flooding coastal cities. And although I'm a geologist, I didn't really consider it, but she says, well, sea level rise isn't as much of an issue in the Arctic because they are still undergoing isostatic rebound, which is essentially the crust is still rising um, from the, la- the end of the last ice age when a couple kilometers of ice caused it to get pushed lower into the Earth's mantle. So I found that fascinating that sea level rise isn't as much of an issue up there as decrease in sea ice, uh, warming tundra, and some of those uh, challenges that they're facing
1: yeah and but it definitely is the talk of the town down here you know, that's that's what you hear about when you hear about climate change yeah it's uh, i I hadn't thought about that either, but that's fascinating
0: yeah yeah i was uh, I was shocked and a little embarrassed that I didn't think of that myself, but hey That's all right. I get I get a lot of that.
1: I was just going to say that there are some really great um, northern minds that are working on, you know, some of those challenges. I mean, infrastructure being, you know, one of the major ones in terms of, you know, uh, planning for for how people can can continue to to live in in many of the communities where, um, as you said, the the permafrost is just the, the, the nature of the environment is actually physically changing, you know, out from under them. And, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, I mean, it's, it's a big, it's a, it's a really big uh, challenge.
0: Yeah. Well, it'd be interesting to see what develops in the years to come with the opening of the Northwest Passage, uh, and other challenges that they're facing on land. Um, but yeah, it's, and it, it is neat to see how, you know, the, the world will focus on their local problem, but. They're not necessarily the same problems, so mm-hmm. uh, it, it's just been an eye-opener for me in that climate change manifests in so many different ways depending on where you are. But you know, I'm curious, you've been in the, the adventure tourism industry for uh, quite a while now, and I've got a, a couple of questions. What kind of clientele do you see these days for uh, the folks who want to travel to the Arctic and, and have an educational experience like yours?
1: Well, um, historically, our company has taken primarily Canadians, um, you know, really with uh, a lot of teachers and um, educators, people that are looking to, to better understand and know Canada. Um, but with all of the talk of the Northwest Passage, we're really starting to see um, a shift in that uh, from our perspective, the majority of our clients are still Canadian, but um, we're getting a lot of interest from across the border. Um, lots of Americans are are turning their eyes uh, north and and wanting to to see it, to experience, to understand it, and you know, and to do a little bit more than Alaska, which is also amazing. But you know, just to see um a different side of it and we're also really seeing a lot of Australians that are that are wanting to to visit the Canadian Arctic which um which is interesting I mean of course uh, you know as Canadians we all know that Australians they love to come to Canada and we love to go there Um, but uh we're we're really I mean the interest is um is you know three times what it was even five years ago. From really? down under, so that's that's been really interesting for us, and um, you know the conversations that you have um, take on a very different tone. Uh, you know, for a lot, a lot of Canadians, you know, who grew up with Farley Mowat and um, and others, just sort of have a little bit of that um, Arctic or polar um, psyche, so to speak. And uh, and so it's really it's really been a pleasure to have the conversations um, with people that actually you know, they know the destination, but they don't have the same background as, um, as what many Canadians that travel further north already do. So it's, um, yeah, it's just, it's just a really interesting, interesting experience. And and we're getting a lot of questions that, um, you know, we as Canadians might not ask, because they, they might seem obvious, but, um, but perhaps they're actually not, you know, and so it's, um, and, and just sort of the really people wanting to really understand the, um, the natural environment, but also the political and social environment, uh, and how it's changing and adapting, and um, and moving forward.
0: Oh well, that's that's interesting. I certainly wouldn't have expected that uh, Australians would would be a main source of clientele. I guess I would have thought Europeans, but yeah, that's fascinating. Well. So, with that and uh, the type of business that you run, what are some of the challenges that you guys face uh, in the in the tourism or adventure tourism space these days
1: um, well there's a the natural world is probably the number one challenge that we have uh, it's you know it's our greatest blessing, but when you're uh, looking to deliver a expedition um, or or tour that people have you know an idea of what their itinerary might be um, is always a challenge because, as you know, um, you know ice, ice and wind and weather in the Arctic. I mean, there's just no compromise. It's no, <laughs> you can't do much um, uh, to to get around to get around what's what's happening out there. Which, of course, is what makes it exciting. You know, I mean, that is why I think so many people go. But it's uh, I think it's getting people out of their um, mindset that, uh, that we can control our environment, you know, so from our side, of course, there's planning around ice and, um, you know, what to do when you've got a, a certain place in mind that you want to go to. And, um, you know, there's a big, beautiful polar bear right on the shoreline. What are you going to do? Um, rather than what you had planned. Um, so, you know, I mean, all, all great challenges, but again, it's how you look at it. Um, so, uh, so that's definitely one of the, the areas that we really have to take into consideration. And, you know, we do, uh, well, as you do with any expedition, I mean, you're doing months and months of, uh, planning in advance and ensuring that all possible, um, uh, T's are crossed and, and I's are dotted. And, uh, and then you go into it with the mentality that everything is going to change and you're going to have to be <laughs> good enough on the spot to, uh, to make it incredible. And, I mean, that's the business that, um, that we're in. The other interesting thing that we've been seeing more and more of as well is, um, I think, um, people expecting an armchair experience in an environment that really doesn't provide that. And, and by what I mean by that is, you know, uh, uh, you you might be in an incredible place and, um, you know, see a polar bear and, you know, you're, you're out on deck and you can, you can photograph it and you can just take it in, you know, with your own eyes. And, you know, it's amazing the amount of times that I've actually heard, um, man, I didn't feel like we got close enough to that, um, to that bear or, or muskox or whatever it happened to be. And I, um, you know, I, of course, I think it's incredible that we have the opportunity to, um, you know, watch on national geographic or BBC or nature of things, you know, these incredible um, wildlife encounters but it's it's interesting that um, sometimes people don't realize that that photographer was probably out there for four months or shooting with a telephoto lens and um, so that that's just sort of a a little side um, challenge that's that's we've noticed more and more over the past couple of years perhaps as um, as uh you know, more people that haven't had a lot of outdoor experience are are starting to take the plunge to discover the natural world, um, which is great. And uh, yeah, it's just it's it's interesting.
0: Yeah, that's well. I think when I was living in Canmore and Banff was uh, right next door, we used to see a lot of that where everybody wants that selfie, or you know, they're all uh, Instagram photographers now and you know, they're going to pull their car up on the side of the road and get as close as they can to a grizzly before somebody yells at them uh, or worse happens, which actually doesn't out there, thankfully. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think there's this misconception that uh, just because you're you're in a park or there's people nearby or because you're on a, a guided expedition tour, that there's a certain level of safety and you should be able just to walk right up and have a look at these things because they look so docile at the time, which is definitely not the case. But you know, it was interesting what you were saying about uh, weather and how you have to adapt for that. And it just made me think that you know, in some ways, it's probably very good for people to realize that these aren't just canned products; they're dynamic. And when people venture off to these places, they realize that you know they've left their city of concrete and steel behind. And now Mother Nature really is in charge and, you know, we just have her permission on the day to use the land or the water as she sees fit. So, you know, I find that interesting and I can probably see a really nice tie back to your Inuit um, interpreters and and storytellers that you you bring on board to add to the culture too. So we're getting really close to the end of this. I've been loving it. It's fascinating for me. I've got two final questions for you. So, one, your life is as an expedition planner and I'm sure you probably have the best tips, the best lists and I just love a couple tips uh, to plan expeditions to far off, wild, perhaps difficult to access places because I know that I've had to learn through uh, trial and error and most people probably just don't get started because they're too nervous about making a mistake. So. Uh, If you've got any expedition tips, I'd I'd love to hear them and maybe even in Misadventure or two.
1: (laughs) Well, uh, a couple of key ones that I would uh, always advocate for is uh, one, do not assume that you know better than the locals. (laughs) uh, Another one would be to... Well, I got this mantra from a lady named Doris McCarthy, famous Canadian painter uh, who uh, I traveled with last to the Arctic when she was 92. And just, I mean, she'd been for um, large portions of her, of her life. And she just said, you know, Cedar, you've got to hang loose. You got to hang loose here because you are not (laughs) going to be able to do anything. Just as you mentioned before, um, that Mother Nature will not allow you to do. So accept it and make the best of it. Um, but then from the, the planning side of it, I mean, I would always suggest that you always assume for the worst and make your plans uh, based on um, things going wrong versus things going right. And, um, and, and you'll probably end up fine because you'll be over-prepared. And if you equip yourself with the attitude that um, whatever you have planned is also going to change, Uh, then you're then you'll probably do fine
0: (laughs) so be be highly adaptable be extremely well prepared and hang loose there we go yeah yeah
1: yeah definitely
0: (laughs) well i love it it's fantastic tips and uh so true i mean it just it, it covers it off so well uh, maybe that's where I've been going wrong. I always assume that things are going to go right, and we're going to uh, just fly through these things. Well, that, Thank God that's for satellite great. phones. Most of
1: the time they do, but you got to be prepared for the opposite.
0: Oh yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, it, it's true. You, we we thread the needle so many times, and uh, have I've been very lucky. But we we've certainly learned over the years. I mean. Just even as recent as five years ago, never brought sat phones into the field, never considered evacuation, medical insurance, didn't follow up with everybody to make sure they had the basics like travel insurance. Yeah. And now, I mean, I won't take anybody on one of our projects unless they can prove that they have all those things. So, yeah, you know, it's, uh, it's interesting uh, what you learn through doing. But uh, Cedar. It's been a real pleasure interviewing you today. Thanks so much for uh, carving some time out of your busy Friday. I know we're keeping you from uh, the weekend and uh, a couple of excited children. So uh, yeah, it's, been a, it's been a real treat and I uh, appreciate all the insight and information that you've shared during this talk.
1: Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Simon.
0: Thank you so much for listening and I hope you enjoyed this week's edition of the Adventure Science Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about Adventure Science, you can visit us online at www. AdventureScience.com. You can find us in the social media realm at adventure underscore Sci for Instagram and Twitter or you can find us on Facebook at Adventure Science. Technical assistance for the Adventure Science podcast is provided by Olivier Hubert Benoit and Adventure Science wishes to thank its sponsors for making this possible. Merrill, Farm to Feet, Stoked Oats, Sunto, Canada Satellite and Earthcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time.